There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. Today, my guest is Dr. Lindsay Crawl, who is uh, author of a recent, or actually not that recent anymore, study on the uh, waste production from small modular reactors, uh, published in uh, the Proceedings for the National Academy of Sciences. Welcome, Lindsay. How are you? Thanks, Rod. I'm doing good. Um, just keeping busy. Good. And maybe you could give a little bit more background about yourself and about your study uh, before we get started. Okay. Um, well, I'm currently a geochemist at the Swedish Nuclear Fuel and Waste Management Company. Um, but before this, I was a postdoctoral scholar for three years, um, split between George Washington University and Stanford University, where I um, was part of a MacArthur grant to study um, the waste from advanced reactors. Uh, so that's, that it was during that time that I wrote the SMR paper. Okay, so this is a project that you undertook after you completed your PhD. How, how did you come up with the topic? Was this something that you had studied uh, during your doctoral studies? Uh, no, not directly. I have a PhD in geology with a focus on geochemistry, and I studied natural radionuclides. So there are some overlaps um, when it comes to chemistry and radioactive um, elements. But uh, yeah, it was sort of a, a leap for me because the fellowship was supposed to be more policy oriented, but I <laughs> made it rather technical, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Was that uh, assisted by by your your co-authors? Did they help uh, you choose the, the the technical over the policy path? Oh no, I would say the policy path was more encouraged, but I felt that there needed to be more of a technical basis before um, you could create policy um, from yeah. From, from the studies because, um, yeah, I just felt that there, there wasn't a strong technical basis for policy at, at that point. So your study received quite a bit of uh, attention uh, and, and publicity, uh, even a little bit before it was released. I guess some uh, members of the press received an advanced copy and there was a an article released on the Stanford uh, University website. Uh, was was that something that you were surprised to find or that surprised about the interest that was uh, yeah. developed as a result of your study? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was aware that there were these um, things moving in the background, um, but I really didn't think there would be that much interest in 
the article because I had been studying it for many years and presenting about it and writing about it. And um, there wasn't, it didn't, it didn't seem like there was a huge amount of interest during those, those presentations. Yeah, I can, I've, I've been to some of those uh, conference presentations where you're talking about your, your work and there somehow there's only two or three or a dozen people in the audience and they're all distracted by their own work. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. There, I mean, there weren't that many questions or pushback or any of that stuff. So I just, it just didn't seem like it was interesting. So who, who were your, your co-authors in this work? Um, well, one of them was Allison McFarlane and the other was Rod Ewing and they are both, um, professors. Um, yeah. Allison's at the University of British Columbia, and Rod is at Stanford University. And at what at at the time of the paper, I think wasn't Allison at the George Washington? Is that uh, yeah, somewhere she, in the East Coast? She moved while I was working on the paper, so I think she, yeah, she she recently moved, but she started the grant at um, George Washington. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I just realized that, that, that this interview with you makes it 100% of the uh, authors of that paper have been guests on the Atomic Show. Oh, wow. I talked to, to Dr. Ewing, I think probably about Atomic Show number 60, and Allison mm-hmm. sometime before she became the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I've met with all of you. Yeah. Um, so t- tell, let's kind of summarize some of the conclusions that uh, were reached in the paper, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the entering assumptions that, that, that resulted in uh, your, your framing the, the uh, calculations. What, what were the results? I mean, are, are small modular reactors automatically going to produce more waste or less waste or the same amount of waste? Um, I think they'll produce more waste, um, but there's a lot of variation between the different SMR designs mm-hmm. and the different SMR sizes. So one point that the paper was trying to make was that it's not necessarily intuitive. You know, we're not following linear trends um, with respect to waste production and reactor size, um, the the trends are non-intuitive um, mm-hmm. is one thing I was trying to illustrate. So reactors that are not cooled by water um, or not moderated by water uh, will likely produce more waste because the coolants and the moderators will have to go to um, some sort of geologic repository, be it low and intermediate level waste or long or short lived. You know. um, so there are different waste categorizations that we, we looked into. Um, and so the results were um, put in terms of the waste categorizations. And mm-hmm. um, 
yeah, the, the characteristics of those categorizations, we tried to um, point out that volume is not the only relevant metric when it comes to designing a, a repository, especially for the spent nuclear fuel. Um, what's more important is the radionuclide composition of these waste streams and the, the chemical matrix that those radionuclides mm -hmm. are in and how stable that chemical matrix is in different geochemical environments. In your study, one of the entrant arguments that you that was made was that you would not consider recycling, reprocessing, or dilution as part of the analysis. A lot of the, the advanced reactor programs talk about them contributing to addressing the waste issue because they, for example, say they can recycle uh, materials from previous generations of reactors, or they can have their their cool their fuel because of the formation of salts or metallic uh, fuels are easier to uh, reuse and get more energy out of the uh, input actinides. Can you uh, kind of briefly describe why the decision was made not to take a look at the effects of recycling or reprocessing? Um. Well, there were. A few different reasons. Um, I'd say one of the, the biggest reasons is that even if you are going to recycle um, some of these materials, you will, like recycling still costs money, that whole process. Um, you need to store the materials before they can be recycled because they need some time to decay and so there, there are a lot of steps before you get to the recycling itself. And then the recycling itself also costs money. So um, in that respect, if you're producing uh, more waste from a smaller reactor, then it will presumably cost more to um, recycle that, um, that material. Um, so that was one of the the major um, sort of reasons. Uh, but there's also, I looked into some historical reactors and I mean, like uh, sodium from previous sodium cooled reactors, it, w it was not recycled. It was mm -hmm. um, in, in the best of scenarios it was disposed of as low-level waste mm -hmm. so um you know that's another you know thing that could have been discussed when it came to recycling and i just felt that to do a really thorough to address recycling in a thorough manner would have required a lot of text and it was already uh, a long paper and we were still being mm -hmm. told to shorten it so yeah um, well, and of course there's still a lot of analysis that goes behind the text would be a lot would have extended your your research probably by a considerable yeah. period of time to go into yeah. that in depth yeah because yeah, it's just it's not just about the text that you have to do <laughs> there's usually many days work behind 
every sentence in a paper like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. One of the other challenges, there's been, of course, some pushback by the three designs that, or at least two out of the three designs, I found some responses to to uh, your paper. Uh, you you looked at the new scale uh, SMR, uh, and the, that was the 160 megawatt thermal version, uh, which is the one that has a design certification. You also looked at terrestrial energy use IMSR and the Toshiba 4S, which is a small sodium cooled fast reactor. Uh, I found responses from the first two. Um, the, the Toshiba reactor, I'm not even sure if that's an active project anymore. Do you, do you know? I'm not, not positive. Um, it, oh, yeah, I mean, the documents I cited were um, pretty old. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I discussed the project with the NRC at an early stage. And they specifically said there's been a lot of information submitted about um, this Toshiba 4S design. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think they're actively um, certifying the design, but there was still pre-licensing application material submitted for it. Um, But yeah, that material, like I said, was... uh, 10, yeah, 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. That 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 reactor design got, I think, got subsumed in Toshiba's financial problems in mm. the uh, the early 2010s, 20 teens, mm. um, and got put on the shelf because they just they actually ended up going bankrupt at the time. So that, I think that's part of the issue. And of course, like all other reactor projects, things people lost interest for a while when natural gas was really cheap. Yeah. Which of course is not the problem today. Um, now the, one of the, the things that you mentioned about sodium has certainly been true in the past because almost all of the sodium fast reactors have been essentially one off designs where they were done for research or demonstration. And then, there were no follow-ons. There was no uh, reuse of the sodium. But from what I've been reading, the, if you have a continuing program, the sodium from one reactor can certainly be readily used in another reactor. That's the easiest and most effective way to recycle that material because mm-hmm. the sodium doesn't really get damaged in being used as a coolant. It, it gets activated, but only a small amount is is more than a few days long i mean there's still um contamination it can pick up Mm -hmm. if there are fuel pin failures um so like cesium isotopes was one um sort of issue because cesium has a similar chemistry to sodium so Mm -hmm. it was more difficult to separate out than some of the other isotopes released if there's a fuel pin failure mm-hmm. um so that was one one thing that was discussed but yes if you are going to have generation after generation after generation of sodium reactor there could be a potential to recycle 
the material, but that would also be a requirement for sodium recycling is that you must have, you know, some very long-term plan for, yeah, for having multiple generations of sodium reactors. Mm -hmm. um, so, so well, it's it seems like one, yeah. one of the things that you and your co-authors uh, seem to want to uh, point out or, or caution the industry is that they need to uh, make some plans about what they're going to do with their waste volume. If, if in fact, it's going to be maybe a little bit larger in volume. Of course, the, the volume of waste from nuclear is much easier to handle than the volume of waste from competitive energy sources like fossil fuels. But uh, certainly there needs to be some plans to, to address what is going to happen to this material. Um, as mm. you say, contaminated sodium is something you don't want to free release to the environment. But if it's got some radioactivity in it, it doesn't really harm it, doesn't prevent it from functioning as a coolant inside a radioactive reactor. Um, that could be the case. Uh, but there, yeah, there's just, um, you know, there's no sort of license that is being pursued to um, reuse sodium. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it starts with a discussion of what will be produced yeah. by, by these reactors. And then, yeah. so that that's what I tried to focus on in the paper. What is going to be produced? Yeah. And the, of course, you have to, you have to identify what it is you need to handle as the first yeah. step. Yeah. And, and another issue or, or something to understand about your study is that you needed to do it off of materials that were uh, available to the public and verifiable, like documents submitted to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or something like that. And, and so in some cases, like the choice to focus on the, the uh, version of the new scale SMR that's kind of being superseded by a larger version you focus on the one that where all the documentation is is available is that a fair statement yeah and the review so it's both the documentation and the the review that the nrc conducted for the reactor. yeah an awful lot of the the information that advanced reactor developers uh, are creating is by its very nature proprietary because people like me, I'm in addition to being a podcaster, I'm an investor, uh, run a capital fund or a partner of a small capital fund called Nucleation Capital that invests in advanced reactors. So I got to disclose that here in, in the in the middle of the show. As an investor, we we don't want our portfolio companies to to give up too much of their proprietary intellectual property. Um, they need to disclose what they have to to get through the NRC process. But if you make things public too early, you can destroy the value of the company. Yeah, but say the new scale burn-up um, mm -hmm. was clearly proprietary 
but why should such a sort of, I don't know, it's considered a pretty basic figure for um, a lot of these reactor designs, why should such a, um, a relevant figure um, be proprietary? Um, because it's... Well, uh, a business person would call that competitively useful information. Uh, because burn-up, fuel utilization is a significant input into the economics of a, of a reactor design. And the history of even the large light water reactors is a significant improvement in uh, reactor fuel burn-up during the early stages of, of development. Once the reactors are deployed, there were many improvements to the fuel that allowed it to stay in the reactor longer and be able to, to go through a longer, uh, use up more of the fissile material before it had to be extracted from the reactor. Yeah, and, the uh, core management. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just, a, that's a huge part of the, the competitive uh, advantages that some reactors have. Well, another thing that, you know, in your, I was just again reviewing your paper and, it's not necessarily clear to me that the uh, discussion about neutron leakage recognizes that power level is not necessarily the measure of the size of a reactor. There are reactors, particularly the high temperature gas reactors, where the core physical dimensions is much higher than the physical dimensions of a much higher power light water reactor. In other words, the fuel, I mean, the uh, power density of those reactors is very small. Mm, so yeah, a physically so, large reactor leaks less. Yeah, so a physically larger reactor can still be classified as a smaller reactor, or as a small reactor mm -hmm. is what you're saying, even though it's physically large. It can mm -hmm. produce less than 300 megawatt electric. Um, but yeah, what we pointed out, the discussion was around the, um, the radius of the core. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. rather than total reactor power level. And I think even some of the, uh, the like the, the Oklo reactor, which is a liquid sodium cooled uh, um heat pipe reactor uh, is the physical volume of that reactor is much larger than it would be if it had the same power density as a large light water reactor because it only produces a megawatt but it has to it uses a somewhat larger physical volume for various other reasons and again yeah. it's, it, the, the, the thing that makes it small is the power plant small not the reactor small yeah, so a lot of that discussion was to illustrate the impact of nonlinear effects. Mm -hmm. So um, rather than being some, you know, rule, it was just a general trend. Um, because there are a lot of things that impact leakage. However, um, the point was that because of this leakage, a lot of the small modular reactors are integrating 
um, reflectors. They're using higher uh, fuel enrichment because the higher fuel enrichment, um, you know, you can still get achieve a, a higher burn up despite the leakage. So um, the yeah, one of the points was to illustrate that because of this phenomenon, a lot of the SMRs um, integrate design changes from the large reactors. Mm -hmm. And then we tried to cover what are the impacts of those design changes when it comes to nuclear waste streams. Yeah. The use of reflectors can uh, result in an activated reflector that then has to be evaluated for how it has to be handled depending on the radioisotope concentrations, all those things. But it's also possible to use water as a reflector. Uh, it is a neutron moderator that does a great job at reflecting uh, neutrons back into the core. And of course, in that case, it's not a material that has long-term waste disposal challenges, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, that's what the large light water reactors use water for. It's or one of the uses of water in those designs is as the neutron reflector. Mm -hmm. However, the new scale design used a um, stainless steel reflector and the terrestrial energy design used graphite because if you're using a non-water cooled reactor, then you're not going to use water as a reflector. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be a good idea if water could be used in the SMR designs. I think that would be beneficial because like you said, it, um, it doesn't need to be disposed of in the repository. Yeah. All right. So as a general uh, comment, do you think that the idea that maybe there's going to be a larger amount of waste or a different kind of waste considerations for these advanced reactors. Is that something in your mind that should be uh, used as a, an argument against developing them in the first place? Um, I think it can be used as something to help select um, an optimal design. So um, whatever reactor design um, is considered um, for pursuit, then the full fuel cycle should be taken in consideration, including the back end. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, so it's not that because SMRs will produce more waste, they shouldn't be pursued. It should be how can this information about the back end be used to guide the design process or the selection process in my mind. So what's your, your personal view about the importance of coming up with new ways to use uh, nuclear energy? I think it's a potentially valuable energy resource um, in a low carbon economy. 
Um, but my primary interest is the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle and um, managing the waste safely. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's uh, my primary during the, the last few decades, the, the low carbon argument has been one of the ones that's most associated with, with new nuclear. But as you, I believe you live in Europe right now, uh, and I, I, at least from this side of the pond, it looks like you all are uh, having some serious concerns about whether or not this is going to be a long, dark, cold winter. Uh, what's your feelings about nuclear in that light? Mm, I mean, I guess I live in Scandinavia, so we already have a lot of nuclear um, <laughs> that will keep producing regardless of the gas supply. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, yeah, I think the gas- It's a nice thing to have. When yeah, I mean, I guess the, gas, the right? whole, yeah, exactly. That's why, I mean, one of the reasons I entered nuclear to begin with, when I started, you know, during like the Iraq war, um, those types of things. I mean, oil was a you know, geopolitical issue at that time. It's still a geopolitical issue. So I don't know that the current situation really changes the case for nuclear. It's just always been part of the case for it. When Sweden built most of their reactors, that was associated with the um, 1970s oil crisis. Yeah, way back in the 1970s when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, ge the geopolitics of oil has been uh, obviously an important issue for many, many years, at least 100, 150 years. But the I, I, was, I came of age during the 1970s, and that was the reason I got into nuclear was uh, – hearing people say, well, we're going to run out of, or we're mm -hmm. going to have to pay X number of dollars for or whatever. And, uh, it made me is what made me most interested in entering the nuclear field. Uh, mm. It's abundance is incredible to me. Mm. And yes, there is, there are, uh, materials that get produced in nuclear that don't get produced anywhere else. So it's a matter of, making sure we handle those properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For whatever it's worth, at least in, in the U.S., we, our default right now is to store our uh, low-level waste in shallow repositories. There's only a few of them. They don't take up much space, and they're licensed, and the waste is well-handled and characterized. And then the high-level waste we, we put in engineered casks and as far as i can tell it hasn't hurt anybody anywhere certainly a, a challenge certainly an issue but it's one of those things where people almost throw it down as a, a way to stop all argument they say well what do you do about the waste it's a challenge and of course the attention paid to to your paper seemed to fall into that kind of category to many of us on the, the side that really wants nuclear to succeed yeah, there's always, there's such a sort of 
polarized atmosphere that um, a lot of the results were viewed in, in those terms rather than I would have hoped that it would um, bring up more the discussion of getting the U.S. back on track with respect to developing a geologic repository um, for yeah, the existing waste. And then if you have such a program, a uh, repository program, then it is easier to um, analyze the back end of um, new reactors. But, sure, yeah. if you've got a, a program and you know what kind of characteristics the waste needs to have to be mm -hmm. able to go in there. I mean, I know one of the responses I read was from, I think, Terrestrial Energy, where they said, hey, hey, we, we plan to use this uh, Australian Synrock technology, mix our molten salts up with that, and, and we believe that produces a, an even more stable, uh, easier, to, easier to handle long-term storage. But of course, that has to be fully analyzed and determine if it can meet whatever criteria are set for uh, a, a permanent uh, underground repository. Yeah, I think the processing itself is going to be the challenge there, um, but it needs, um, yeah, it needs to be discussed and given due care um, in order to say that this is a viable pathway. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, another another thing. Uh, a point that some people took away from the paper was maybe large gigawatt scale reactors aren't as mm, disadvantageous as we have been assuming. Yeah, well, they, they certainly have their advantages. I think many of the people that we've talked to who are developing the smaller reactors and are interested in the smaller reactors aren't doing it necessarily to address the waste issue because they think that that's fairly well handled. Uh, what they're doing really is to design reactors that can be easier to build, uh, maybe built on a more routine basis inside a factory and using factory quality control and those kinds of things. And that's really been their focus of design, not so much to try to to optimize something that's already pretty well under control, which is, you know, keeping waste volumes to a manageable level, not necessarily to a minimum level, because when you're talking about the overall optimization of a power plant, the waste handling is only one of many factors involved. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's also um, the decommissioning process. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and that's decommissioning is another area where some of the re now every I mean, there's a huge uh, array of new reactor designs and different uh, talking points that are being used to to market or or talk about each one. But one of the things that's mentioned in the circles that I travel in is that reactors that are small enough to be fabricated inside a factory and transported. Uh, to a site almost intact 
are also small to be moved back from the site back into a factory for disassembly, which is a little bit easier than cutting things apart uh, at the, the gigawatt scale level. Yeah, I mean, cutting torches and those kinds of things. If, if it's true, though, because these um, near core materials will be very highly activated. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have uh, like this neutron reflector for the new scale design was very highly activated and can you transport such a large activated component um, or how long do you have to wait until you can transport it um, so that's yeah something that really hasn't been part of the discussion is the, the actual composition of these materials and the state of these materials um, I know that decommissioning graphite moderated reactors is quite challenging. Yeah. Well, the Brits are, are teaching us a lot about how to dispose of large graphite moderated reactors. Uh, lots of experience available from their AGR program. Hey, Lindsay, I, I appreciate your time. I know that it's getting pretty late where you are uh, in Scandinavia. It's not quite so late here in Florida, but uh, I'm, I'm Hopefully that that I and I think you said you you continue to be employed as a as a researcher and uh, an a analyst in the nuclear waste field. And that, that I'm a geochemist. Correct? Yes, I'm a geochemist. I'm not doing um, active analysis of SMRs any longer. It's not part of our um, program. Well, you don't have any SMRs in, in <laughs> Scandinavia, <laughs> at least not right now. Now, is so Sweden is getting close to a repository construction. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, I think sometime this decade we'll, we'll break ground. Okay. Is that any part of your, your current remit involved in that analysis? Were geochemistry involved? Yeah, yeah. So we are like um, writing up a scientific program to um, to monitor the changes in the geochemical composition over the course of repository construction uh, to sort of compare it with our conceptual models to, to verify our conceptual models of um, how this bedrock looks um, as we're constructing. We'll be doing characterization um, to compare to what we thought we would see based on our characterization from scoping boreholes drilled from the surface. Sounds, sounds important. All right. Well, thank you very much and uh, have a good evening. Okay, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Atomic Show. I was speaking with Dr. Lindsay Crawl, author of Nuclear Waste from Small Modular Reactors, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, May 31st, 2022.
If you like listening to The Atomic Show and have any comments, please uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast application you use to collect these wonderful bits of audio. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Atomic Show. This is Rod Adams, and I've been your host for The Atomic Show for more than 15 years. Along with Atomic Insights, I've been speaking with experts in analyzing nuclear energy for more than three decades. While I'll continue to produce new content, I am also actively investing in advanced nuclear and related ventures. As a managing partner of Nucleation Capital, I'm expanding my access and getting to dig even deeper into nuclear energy companies. We're working hard to select ventures with extraordinary promise of success. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. The best part is the fact that we're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions which typically allocate to venture capital. We believe regular investors should have access to advanced nuclear for their own portfolios, so we allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. Eight quarters will get you eight to 12, which is pretty diversified exposure. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. See you next time. There's a way, a way, such a better way. Today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way. Ooh, there's a way, such a better way. Today, today. Now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way.